Consequence Podcast Network. This week, on the sidetrack, I'll be joined by writer, producers, and Renaissance men about town, Cinco Paul and Ken Dario. We'll talk about Bubble Boy, Dr. Seuss, Schmigadoon, and much more, including the 1971 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's this week on The Sidetrack. Welcome back to The Sidetrack. Hi, it's me, your host, Paul Davidson. As explained in just a terse 11 words in the opening, I am thrilled to have screenwriter, producer, renaissance men, quadruple threat, music video director, songwriters, book authors, they do it all. Cinco Paul and Ken Dario. Now, if you even, I don't know how you don't recognize the names, they're so unique unto themselves, but you've seen them, I guarantee it, on a slew of films that you have watched over and over again. These guys are the writer-producers behind such films as Despicable Me, Despicable Me 2, Despicable Me 3, Secret Life of Pets, Secret Life of Pets 2, The Lorax, Horton Hears a Who, and of course, how could we forget Jake Gyllenhaal's Bubble Boy? In addition to all that, they just recently wrapped production on their new musical Apple TV Plus series, Schmigadoon, starring none other than Cecily Strong, Keegan-Michael Key, Alan Cumming, Fred Armisen, Kristen Chenoweth, Dove Cameron, Jane Krakowski. <sighs> I'm so tired thinking about all of the work that the, these guys are doing on a daily basis. That's not even mentioning the stuff they're writing now. Sequels, originals. What's fascinating about these guys and what I'm excited to talk to them about is the varied history and the unique position they're in writing feature films for the animated space. These are the kind of movies where you write a script and then what you put on the page can change. Um, Animation takes four years. So I'm curious to understand from their perspective on a four-year run like that, how the script changes, how ideas come to the forefront And uh, when you see that finished product, just how much work and how much of the original idea remains. It's fascinating. It's a lot of work. And uh, I'm really interested to get a chance to talk to these guys about that. And not only those things, but their upcoming musical, Schmigadoon, come on, with a title like that. And of course, the movie they picked for their feature-length audio commentary, which is available now as a separate episode for 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I've listened to the commentary and I'm not lying. I'm not kidding when I tell you I was on the floor hysterical. It is not only just a a fun, nostalgic film to watch, but listening to Cinco and Ken talk you through that film and their problems with it and the things they love and just listening to their pure joy as they go through uh, real time watching that film is is quite an entertaining bit. So check that out. And in the meantime, you're here with me now and waiting in the wings, none other than Cinco and Ken. So without further ado, let's bring them on and my interview with them here on The Sidetrack. So here we are with Cinco and Ken. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Great. Thanks for having us. Yes, we are fantastic. We're doing great. Are you now you guys are both in LA? How are you and the families coping with going on a year of this uh whole rigmarole? Yeah, um, my, my year's been a little easier than Cinco's year, I think. <laughs> oh, Cinco's because year. I was yeah, I was up in Vancouver shooting Schmigadoon. Right. Right. So I was getting tested three times a week and wow. was and I, wearing all the PPE and stuff you know, all the time. So, and I was just writing in my office. It was <laughs> yeah. Big. How did I you get it. out of going to Vancouver, Ken? Because Cinco just, I, you know, I said, Cinco, go make the show. And he did. <laughs> it was great. Does Cinco have more kids than you can? No, we have the same amount of kids. Okay. So it wasn't a kid thing. It wasn't trying to get away from more children. No, no. mine are a little younger. Okay. But yeah, but no, it was uh yeah, we just kind of, 
we split it up that way. Cinco went and made the show. I stayed here and kept writing family stuff. And 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 do you find, have you found that over this time, you know, there's there's two schools of thought from folks who are creating, writing, trying to, you know, be productive over this last year. Some people will say, you know, it's really tough for them to wrap their head around writing. It may be different for you guys. I think it is because you kind of, you exist in uh, a space of creating worlds that kind of are a bit more escapist, that are a little less, you know, this is not, you're not holding up a mirror to the world that we live in. I'll say that the first two or three months of the pandemic, I really had a hard time. Yeah. I don't know about you, Ken. I had a hard time focusing and being able to like get myself motivated right. to write. Yeah. But, but since then, but then, you know, because we were shooting, the demands of that schedule sort of, pushed it aside you know and i just you had i had to i had no choice yeah but before that it was a little tough how about you i i I think it was it was but also to your point paul we we do live in a bubble you know cinco you and i have been writing in a bubble for many many for 20 plus (laughs) years i mean so you know every once in a while it's like we'll go outside and realize oh the sun's out we're we're just we've been (laughs) writing all day no but 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 you know i think there is something to that i do think that our kind a lot of what we do kind of is created in a bubble. So that's helpful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is hard to not see other humans. And yeah. You forget well, how do people react to things? I don't remember. <laughs> well, well, my kids just keep watching, you know, we've used this as an opportunity to, I call it like the nostalgic weighted blanket of entertainment, you know, watching movies that are from, and you know, not like the last five or 10 years, but sitting them down and really, you know, sharing with them movies that, you know, I grew up on and there's a, I don't know. It's um, it just it makes you feel better. <laughs> it makes you think of better yeah, times. Yeah, it's comfort food. Yeah. There, you know, I mean, all my favorite movies I've seen at least a dozen times or yeah. more. You know, and and there are certain shows. You know, I know that my daughters love the Gilmore Girls, yeah. and they'll go. That's just their comfort show. You know, to go back and watch. And so, entertainment can provide an escape. It can be a nice, warm, cozy blanket. Yes. And yeah, this this sorry, this COVID time is a great time to sort of educate the kids. Like, all right, kids, we're going Spielberg today. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, what, <laughs> we're going old Spielberg. Yeah. yeah, it's it's sometimes it's tough to convince them, but uh, I've been doing yes. doing my best as well. Oh, it it's it looks old. Oh, yes. E. T. You know. Yeah, um, but it's great to curate fight. your child's right to curate very carefully <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the movies they get to watch. Well, it's initially. you know to, to both your points when you look at the list of credits that you guys have under your belt, all of these films kind of are a bit of a weighted blanket of not even nostalgia but just feel good, right? I mean, you may you may want to have a debate about Bubble Boy, but outside of that. <laughs> For the most it's part, it's very feel good. It was <laughs> intended mean, to be. I mean, it's it's, sort of I have, qu- I have questions. We'll, yeah. we'll get there, but um, <laughs> you know the uh, the majority of the films since you know call it like 2008, starting with Horton. Really, there's there's uplifting messages in these films. It's it's character driven. It's they're sweet. They're funny. And so one of the things that if you research you guys on the internet, which my crack team of investigators did ahead of time. Um, which is really mm, thank just heavens me. for them. The, yes. There's an there's an infamous story that people have reprinted many times when we we think about the origins of this partnership that I don't need to oh, go no. into detail with. I mean, at the end of the day, Paul writes a musical for the 150 year celebration of the um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Ken has a role in that. This is where you guys meet and realize, you know, there's a connection there. You guys have a similar sense of humor. Why not start working together? That's been reported. What I, I read that story and what I want to know, having experienced all the films that you guys have written and the songs that come come along with these worlds, I want to know what is the, what was the hit song out of that musical? What is the song <laughs> that that will live on from that? And what was the, the musical called? The, the musical was called Dear Diary, okay. and it was about a pioneer girl and a modern-day girl. Right, switching places. places. Right, they right. switched places. Ken played the modern father. And so the hit song, I would have to say, is probably the song that uh, Ken sang called Entertained. <laughs> but there was a song called Wagon's Ho, which is everything yes, you would imagine it. <laughs> 
would, would be. It's all the pioneers getting ready to hit the trail. And so yeah. they sang, Wagons Ho, you know. <laughs> and it's and a very is, inspiring, yeah. rousing and, number. And is there, when, you know, you you know, early in everyone's careers, there are passion projects. I have to imagine there are songs that maybe didn't make it into that musical, songs that didn't make it into the musical that you say to yourself, man, one day if I could just find a way to shoehorn Wagon's Ho into a movie, <laughs> that would be the goal. Is there something, is there an element or a germ of something in that musical that you... I think I think there was a little bit of Wagon's Ho in... Uh in uh, the Lorax. Wasn't he traveling in a wagon singing? It was a little wagon zoish. No, a, a short film that we directed that accompanied the Lorax was called Wagon's Ho. Okay. That's what it was, there right? Yeah, there you go. We didn't, we weren't able to squeeze the song in. No. Okay. But um, I don't right. know, it was maybe, Wagon's Ho. maybe this pioneer uh, musical will, will live again at some I, point. Who I knows? don't know. I think there's an, there's an untapped audience for pioneer musicals oh it's very untapped it's very untapped yes so so when i so i read this story and then it reminds so i i have this thing I, i've dubbed as of this morning my musical rorschach test i never sing i'm not a singer but i want to sing three lines of something and i want to know from both of you what is it what memory does it spark and if it goes to where i think it's going to go then there's a conversation here but let me just do this and we'll see if you know Oh my goodness. Here we go. Okay. Here we go. I'm excited. Who broke my window? Telling the truth isn't going to be easy. Do you know what that's from? That's got to be Davy and Goliath? No. no Mr. Robinson, funny. Mr. Robinson, what a horrible mess. I broke your window with my ball and I've come to confess. Oh, is that Dennis? Alfonso Ribeiro singing these lines. It's from a famous Mormon commercial. Do you not remember? What? You don't I don't remember know these this. commercials. I don't know it either. <laughs> no. I swear to God, I this is what's so fun. I grew up, I, I think, quite honestly, from my childhood, I grew up in the eighties, that of any religion, the Mormon religion did the most to almost popularize and create these songs and these these musical earwigs on television commercials. There's a commercial with Alfonso Alfonso Ribeiro. And he breaks this guy's window, and it become it, you can look on YouTube for who broke my window, but it's yeah, one there of were a series of what they they called them Mormon ads. Yeah, but they I'm, came out in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, but I somehow missed that. Must not have been uh, played in my community much. <laughs> I mean, they're amazing. I actually even remember ordering board games. There was a, a Mormon board game they were advertising on television too. Clearly, all like you know a way wow. to. To communicate the the faith, but I, it's just funny because those those songs and those commercials stick stick with me still in a way wow. that like you know opening songs, which by the way it's a whole other conversation. TV shows today just don't we don't get the silver spoons, we don't get the facts no, of life, different no, strokes opening don't. songs that we used to, um, the jingles so to speak. But I just it was I was curious to ask because. There is clearly, a, you know, a background in music, a passion in music, and I didn't know what where that came from. Not to say it came from an Alfonso Ribeiro television commercial, but <laughs> didn't know what no, the crossover might be. I mean, if be. only it had, that would right? have been an amazing story. Um, well, let's Ken, back up you know, and tell and tell that story. Let's let's yeah. just let's just move forward like that's how we're came. From. <laughs> but Ken and I did, you know, because it was a musical. I'd heard him sing, and we. Uh, connected over the Beatles, our love of the Beatles. And after rehearsals, we'd hang out, I'd play piano and we'd sing Beatles songs. And so then we formed a band. So music has been a huge part of our partnership and we formed a band. And then only after we feel felt like the band had, <laughs> I don't know, we'd, we'd, we'd uh, found a real friendship there. That's when we wrote our first script together. And yes. so before that, Ken, are you off directing all of these music videos, the Blink-182? I mean, you did hundreds of music videos. In the timeline, where is it that you're you know, directing music videos and film shorts, and then where is Cinco at the same time that that's happening? So the timeline goes like this. I'm making music videos, literally starting straight out of high school, um, making zero money, and putting every dollar we get back into the next project so we can build our reel, me and some buddies. Yeah. And I'm making music videos. It's about 10 years into this and I'm still making zero money and I'm still scrambling to try and make it, make it happen. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, this was my film school. This is where I shot 
I, I shot every weekend. I was shooting and editing and loading film and working with actors and or band members and and I was making short films all the time. And yes, yeah, so that was the end of this. In about ten years, I had uh, a baby on the way, and it was sort of like I think I'm gonna have to get a real job. But but this was right about the time that. Uh, that Cinco and I were met and we were forming the band and we were having a great time. And it was sort of like, yeah, let's, let's write something together. And I thought, well, it can't hurt. And it didn't hurt. It, it and and that's is that the script that sells, but never gets made before bubble boy. Yes. Yes. Special. And, and what is that script? It is a script about a, a guy who he's trying to win over this woman and he gets this autographed. He wants to get an autographed football for her son, but the only way to get it is to be in the special fans stand, mm -hmm. which is the fans who are disabled. So he <laughs> pretends to be disabled yep. in order to get the football and then gets stuck being in a documentary for weeks. <laughs> and he has to continue pretending to be he's disabled. And, and so you guys, you guys toil over idea. the script for you toil, toil over the script for how long? And then how, how do you have agents at the time? How does it get sold? No, well, Cinco suggested this idea as the thing that we write together for fun. And I thought, really? Is that the idea? Is that, is that the one we should go with? And, uh, and we, yeah, so we dove in and we worked on it. I, I didn't have an agent. Cinco did. Yeah. And Cinco was working at the time. Cinco had been, you'd been writing things. Yeah, no, I'd been working. And I guess I was what you would call like moderately successful. Nothing had gotten made, but I was getting paid. So it yep. was a real job for me. Sure. But... But Ken and I had so much fun writing the script and then we turned it in and just, and it was not in, it sounds like it, maybe it was in bad taste and pushing the envelope, but that's not our style. So it really wasn't that. Right. But we turned the script into our agent, my agent and manager, and they both kind of rejected it or said, <laughs> said like, crazy. oh, we can't, we can't put this out there. <laughs> but then the manager just cause she was really nervous and we were saying, no, let's put it out there, gave it to a friend and the friend loved it and passed it on to her friend. And within a couple of days, it had spread out over the whole town. And our agent manager had no choice that's so fun. but to send it out. And then it sold. And then that's really what launched us. But then Bubble Boy obviously was the next step because we sold that as a pitch. And then it got made and that, you know changed everything and is and is that pitch for bubble boy remember the 1976 travolta movie that concept but we're going to do x like how how yes was, yeah yeah that as a comedy road trip yeah yep. give us your money <laughs> <laughs> and they did and despite and by the way it, i mean wikipedia just sucks i mean the the honest commentary comes out on on wikipedia <laughs> where you know this movie yes. not successful this movie you know whatever but the there was a sense of, I mean, just the sense of misfits, the misfit cast in Bubble Boy is so fun and so fun to watch Jake Gyllenhaal at a younger age totally embrace it. I love that sequence in the mud wrestling sequence where him and the, I think it's a Japanese, a Japanese right, guy. The $500. Yeah, I mean, it, there's so much yeah. fun, fun stuff in that movie. I mean, listen, even if it wasn't successful, it's it's an iconic title, I think, that a lot of people know about, so... There's a there's a glass half full scenario there. Yeah, it's it's it was a huge bomb and a, a critical and commercial failure in every way. But then it kind of found a life on Comedy Central or something. And it, it's I would call it like a minor cult favorite yes. maybe now. But um, but I'm still proud of a lot of it. It sort of got taken away from us, you know, as things yeah. often do when you're the, just the, the writer. But and, and so does that experience when you get to a place as you have been over the years where, you know, you're starting, you know, being credited as writers and eventually you're kind of coming on board as producers, executive producers. Does that experience on your first produced movie screenplay really play a part in you over indexing over, you know, pushing more to get to stay more involved in a project as the years went on? Ken, Ken's, I, Ken's wants to let me because he knows I'm the driving force behind yeah. this. Yeah. No, but Res for sure, resounding for sure yes, <laughs> for yeah. sure it does. No, it, it, it's it was our first time, you know, having a film made. We're we're there on the set every day. We had we had directors' chairs with our names on them. It was so exciting. Yeah, and and I mean, we were rewriting pages every day, turning in new jokes. It was fantastic. And then about halfway through the production, 
the director sort of decided, well, I'm halfway, they can't turn back and just kind of started to rewrite things. Oh. And we would show up and new pages were there that we didn't even know about. Um, and, and everything just kind of shifted at that point and changed and just losing control like that or watching it slip away and there's really nothing you can do. That was, that was pretty impactful for, yeah. for me. Yeah. For it stung. It, yeah, it was really hard. And that's, that's what sort of led me in particular towards like being a showrunner, like being able to have more control over the final result. But we certainly have been very involved in all the animated movies. You know, yeah. Chris Melodondri at Illumination was great about that and let us. We really were go basically all the way through. Yeah, yeah, we oh. were executive producers really on all those in a sense because we were heavily involved all the way through. I mean, outside outside of maybe one movie like Sing, oh, aren't you guys the creative forces behind? I mean, along with partnering with Chris, but isn't every every movie that came out of Illumination for the most part. I mean, again, we know that Blue Sky and Ice Age came before the Despicable Me movies, but there's a good majority of those movies that are, it's your partnership with Chris and Illumination, yeah? Yeah, we were there. I mean, we it was it was Chris, Cinco, and Ken for a while there. Yeah. Uh, because he At left, the very beginning. At the very yeah. beginning, he left uh, Fox and and called us out to breakfast and we met and he said, I'm starting this new division and I want you guys to do it with me and so yeah it was the three of us and we 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 did everything we everything kind of went through the three of us for a, a long and at time. that breakfast we mapped out the, the <laughs> stories for every for movie every... that we made over the next 10 years <laughs> including several that aren't no <laughs> no but yeah it was a great experience because he basically said i want you to write all my movies and ultimately you know they brought other writers on and as sure. you know paul right it's a hugely collaborative yes of medium. course you know, and so we, you know, yes, these are not have all to, our creations. We have to but... acknowledge that for sure. But yeah, it was a great time, and and what was great, Paul, especially, was that we everything we wrote got made. Yeah, we were always just working doesn't on happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the the three despicable Mo- despicable me movies on their own. I think represent the only animated trilogy or animated set of IP, the, the highest grossing IP in the animation space out of anything, which is amazing. Like at least you can go to bed at night not having <laughs> yes. imposter syndrome, right? Every every night when I go to bed, I like look at the posters for those three movies. <laughs> we and hug then our minions. And then I close my eyes and... No, but it is. Yeah. And, and you bring up Despicable Me and that is, that's the title that I feel like you know, we'll live on, and it's it's just became this thing that was so much bigger. That sounds cliche, right? We had no idea. No, we had no idea. But we didn't. We had no yeah. idea. No, I mean, we were making this thing, and it, and it was. It was like Chris, Cinco, and Ken meeting wherever we could meet. It was like we really throwing this thing together, uh, and then at some point, the whole world knows about it, and then you know, these minions are everywhere. It just, it really was surreal to watch to watch that thing kind of blossom and take over yeah I, I blame you for the bebo of it all in my house mm. yeah yeah the, we, we the take bebo. a lot of blame <laughs> we'll take the blame it's, so i think no. we can actually take you know a lot of the blame for the minions and most of it should go to pierre cofan <laughs> and chris right. renault the directors but i think Beto Beto was in our script so there you go well and it's, so this is this is a, a good segue for a question that i have so as people anybody who kind of is a fan of, of movies and animated films understand that a film takes, you know, could take two to four years from start to finish. They also, I think, realize that the script that you write while, you know, it's constantly changing the animators sometimes, or, you know, the story is, is being tweaked as they go along. They're using actors performances to help animate the characters. When you go, when you write something like Despicable Me and you, where does that, where does the, how does the script continue to evolve and where, and what kind of level of involvement are, is the animation side having on going back and having to tweak and rewrite and add new scenes and delete scenes? How does that, how does that work from a creative screenwriting standpoint? I mean, I would say, and Ken has actually gone back to this world, so he can probably speak more <laughs> contemporaneously to it, but it is, it's a, it's a marathon because you are literally rewriting. We would, can we would rewrite every day. Every the single script. day is rewriting. And yeah. what's happening, we're watching dailies three days a week. And every time you see something up on the screen, you know, you see what 
is working and what's not. And so then you're rewriting based on that. And it's a constant push pull between the animators, the storyboard artists, the directors, Chris, us, you know, it's, it's, it's constantly, and it is kind of exhausting, yeah. I'll, I'll say, cause it does take about three years and you just never stop. And you, you literally, never stop rewriting. Yeah. yeah. You're rewriting all the way through until about what, two months before the movie comes out. When yeah. They, finally lock the sound then they when they finally lock picture and you're like picture yes. and sound. because even when they lock picture you can change some dot some lines that are off That's screen true. things no you're rewriting all the way all the way through but and it's a really difficult process because you you write this script you write the first draft and you're like okay we got it we're pretty close <laughs> and you are not close you, yeah. you you may be close but you but you have to go through this this gauntlet this like it's a refiner's fire over and over and over and so you have to watch a lot of your favorite scenes go away and that was really hard at first to watch our favorite things just get thrown aside but one of two things happens you're either going to come up with something better and if you don't come up with something better generally that great thing will come back and the good things do come back and all the best stuff generally rises to the top so it's there's a lot of faith you have to put in the process and i guess who you're working with to really believe that the best version of this movie is going to come out at the end. So what's interesting? So in in that scenario that you described, that is that is original IP, which is an interesting segue to the Dr. Seuss of it all. So Cat in the Hat gets made. The rumor is <laughs> that Audrey, the widow of Dr. Seuss, not necessarily a huge fan of how it turned out. Sexual sexual innuendo and the like. She's looking for new talent, new creatives to help tell, to bring to the screen some of these other stories, and so. You you nail that uh, opportunity. W- what does that look like? Are you? Does she come to you proactively? Is it something that Chris is chasing to work on these films, these adaptations? How does that come to be? Yeah, it was Chris was approaching her, and he felt like we were the right guys. Yeah. You know, he'd read a script of ours, and so she doesn't come to us. You always go to Audrey, right. you know. And so we would we would drive down to La Jolla and meet with her. And I remember our first meeting when we sort of, you know, pitched our take on Horton, but also I think Chris liked that, you know, here are two wholesome family guys, you know, these are dads. They're not going to do what Mike Myers did. (laughs) I don't know where I read it. You, there was an interview, I think Cinco with you about Horton and just uh, in general about how faith always plays a part in, you know, faith does, you don't have to hit people over the head with faith, but faith uh, has an element of just values and family and emotion and whatever that may be. And what I loved about something that you had said with Horton is that, you know, at the end of the day, this is, it's not too far off from, you know, some of the origins of, of the Mormon religion. Horton hears this voice and he's, you know, everyone else around him is, doesn't believe him. And he's got to go on faith and try to prove to people that there really is something more that's happening. And I just, I, I just thought that was super um, a, a compelling way to integrate, you know, beliefs and faith into into a Dr. Seuss film. And I was just curious for both of you as you continue to tell these stories. Is it just about finding new and unique and, and ingenious ways of of bringing that forth from a value perspective? Well, it's funny because Horton Horton was my favorite book growing up and kind of as an adult. Like it was always my favorite book. And this was before I was a member of the church, but it was that concept, that idea of faith, of believing in something that you can't see and the world will tell you you're crazy, yeah. um, but but you know it's true. So so I had that, that connected with me when I was a kid. And when I got the opportunity to do it as an adult, it was just that much better. It was so great because, you know, it meant so much more to me. Um, and as far as moving forward with other projects, yeah, I think we, we are optimistic people you know Cinco and I are are very optimistic very you know we're always looking for the good um in everything really so so we're just attracted to those kinds of projects and I think it's important for us to always be putting good out into the universe um yeah faith hope and love baby (laughs) yeah I think that's what it's all about and I think that's what you know we were driven to write projects that are aspirational in that sense or inspirational or you know who are saying that you know hey we can make this world a better place let's or we can be better than we are you know yeah 
right yeah. now. And that's important. And that's a big part of Schmigadoon. And it was interesting, like Cecily Strong, who's one of our two leads, the other's Keegan, you know, came up to me and said, like, this is, it's almost like a spiritual experience for me doing this show because it's so, it's so much about love and hope and being better than we are. And, and that's always kind of what has driven me and Ken, I think, to projects because there's there's plenty of other stuff out there and we i love dark stuff yeah, personally right. i just don't write it it's just not in me yeah. i guess well you write what you're passionate about right write what you yeah. feel i do i do want to hit schmigadoon but there's one thing that i wanted to touch on in the seuss of it all uh, personally for me i uh, i find that the i love the lorax i i've seen it a billion oh. times I find the opening of that movie to be the most um, compulsively listenable earwig ever. <laughs> um, the song, it's, I cannot have heard it for like a year and it's, it's right there in the back of my head. And what I find so, th- what I find so interesting, and I want to kind of just spend a, a couple moments talking about that opening. The opening is super economical when it comes to setting us up I mean, I don't know. You'll answer this question. Like, is is there even a page in the script that kind of says dancing and singing set up the town, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but it, it's so economical the way that you set everything up with music that it's just, I feel like it's almost perfection. And I wanted to understand from your guys' perspective, when does, clearly you're writing the story before you're writing the songs. So how does that opening come to be? And what does it look like in the script? And then I have a few other like anal questions about things from the, the sequence. Well, let, I, I, let me just start by saying, yes, I write down, we set up the world <laughs> through song. And then Cinco, who is a musical genius, uh, sits down and writes lyrics that not, that are just so poignant and funny and just, there's not a wasted word. He is really a musical genius and this you will see in schmigadoon because he wrote all the mu- all the words lyrics everything um but yeah oh, that shucks can that, <laughs> but this is the sink this is the single that wrote that that musical that i was in that yeah. i thought how is this a church play it's funny it's just different it's it's you know it's sharp um that's that's what cinco does so yes cinco made that opening what it is and uh yeah he's amazing yeah, okay. but credit. I well, <laughs> thank you. Ken. Do you have anything to add, Cinco? So well, I mean, obviously, I agree. No, um, <laughs> no, I'll say. Well, John Powell wrote the music. John you know, Powell and, did write the music, and yeah. which is that's the earwig, right, in Fleetville. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, right from the get go, we knew it was going to be a musical. I mean, I think that was Ken and I certainly yes. pitched that we wanted it to be a musical. Yeah. And, and Chris was on board with that. And so, you know, you have to have a, an opening number to introduce you to the world. That's just what it's about. And it is so much more fun to do it in song, right? I think that's what you find. And, yeah. and you're allowed to just say things yeah. in right. song that would feel more expositional <laughs> if someone spoke them. But they're singing them, sure. Just tell us about the town. Tell well, us what it's like. Yeah. Well, so, and but, but to answer this, know that, sorry, go you ahead. You should Ken. know that Cinco got his start writing commercial jingles for the radio. And he knows how to sell an idea. That's for sure. That's, <laughs> That's for sure. True. Well, so so when I think about the sequence and I think about Ted's on his bike, people dancing in the streets, the tree explodes, the town square, the swimming, et cetera, they're, they're, they're skiing, and then um, Aloysius O'Hare. So we get through the whole sequence that ends in the, the entire town, right? Is Are these beats, Ken, in the action lines before before the song is written is is Cinco writing writes the song with those lyrics and then together you guys are beating out what we're seeing on screen at the same time i feel like it can correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like the lyrics probably came first for this but then obviously the storyboard artists went crazy and then we came up with visuals you know stuff but i can't remember exactly. i do know that you know they were they spent years designing all the wacky things in this world and so i do know there were there were images like uh eric yon images of of like the trees that light up and i don't remember i feel like i feel like we wrote that first and then we designed those things okay yeah but it's it's a lot of it's happening at the same time yeah but I think I think to answer your question, I think that was probably me just writing the lyrics first, Got and it. then we expanded it into the sequence. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I have one major problem with the opening sequence. 
logically that I want to share. Um, Bring it. There's a toy shop. It's called the I Want It Now Toy Shop. They're selling yeah. toys for $10. They're selling fluffy toys for $15. And they're selling cuddly toys for $20. I don't understand how cuddly toys are more expensive than fluffy toys. Is there a logic there? Well, right. Cuddly toys, are, there's a much stronger emotional connection. So you'll pay more for that, I would imagine. Okay. I, oh. That's my take. I don't if know. That's your logic. That was a design thing. I don't think we wrote that's that. That's a great. Yeah, we certainly didn't write that, but that's a genius answer, Ken. <laughs> so we'll Thank stick you. with it. Yeah. Okay, stick with that. All right. <laughs> and if that's your only issue with the Lorax, then well, we win. <laughs> no, it's. Win. Cr- I mean, I could ask you what the license plate numbers mean on the big car, but outside of that, <laughs> um, three nine six six seven R. I don't. It's not like the Disney guys who put the same right uh, yeah. door that address a something on everything. Um, no. Is yeah. is there a Pixar illumination feud um, rivalry? <laughs> Do you guys see each other in alleys and like? Is there any of any of that? Yeah, we hate those guys. Yeah, <laughs> we want we want to destroy them. Okay, good. We resent their success. Good. No, I, just, I remember when we started. You know, it was sort of like we'd have a project, and then the day we'd hear about the next upcoming Pixar project, it was just like, oh man, come <laughs> on. <laughs> Just it's like back in the summer. day when what like ants and uh a bug's life came out the two competing bug movies right That's well so then despicable me yeah. had had uh uh what was it uh megamind megamind oh, right right we, yeah. we were racing to get out before megamind because you know you want to be the first villain as a protagonist <laughs> in movie and you hear about those you know like uh everybody had the idea no, we had no idea anyone else was working on uh and i think there's did start after ours not that they copied us but uh no but yeah it's not it wasn't a situation like this great idea was out there and everybody was great no it was just we were making our movie and then we heard uh-oh this is kind of similar Right. It's not like this artists. game. It's not like this GameStop thing where there are literally six or seven it's crazy. movies that they're right. making about GameStop. I was right literally going to just say that. I mean, it's insane. Like Ben Mesrick, who wrote the books that they based Twenty One and The Social Network on, literally sent MGM a one-page proposal for the book he still has yet to even write, which they bought and are turning into a movie. It's like it was. Yeah. It's insane. They won't all. You won't all make it. Well, okay, so so let me say this. So in a world of ideas and competing ideas, one thing can be said about Schmigadoon, having not seen it but knowing what it is, I highly doubt that there is um, a whole bunch of competitive Brigadoon, Schmigadoon type type you know projects out there. Now, from what I know, couple kind of going off to to find that spark in their relationship again, stumbles upon a town that is very much like the musical towns we all remember from the Brigadoons and um, the music mans of the world. Is, is that accurate? That is exactly it. Yes. Well done. Thank you. So tell me, so for a while, this was untitled Cecily Strong Project. Is this something you guys pitched to Cecily? How, how does this come to be? Because my, my impression or my instinct would be this would start with the two of you and then you would find talent and push it forward. That is correct. That is right. Okay. <laughs> two for two. But it is crazy. It's actually the idea for this came like way back when Ken and I first met. Okay. Because I think I told Ken about it like very early on, but yep. I didn't know what to do with it. And it, at the time, it was kind of inspired a little by Brigadoon, a little by the opening of American Werewolf in London, where it's just <laughs> two guys hiking and then they stumble <laughs> on a town that's in a musical. Right. It's also and like then, Land of the Lost. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And so, but I, I never knew what to do with it. And it was sort of the sort of idea that we would bring up every couple of years. We would talk about it. You know, we would say, is it is it a movie? We would, you know, spend a couple of days discussing and then it would go away. Right. Yeah. It's like there really wasn't. But then, you know, the TV landscape had changed and, and we were ready to move away from animation and try something new. And so we met with Broadway Video, which is Lauren Michaels' company. Yep. And they mentioned they were looking for something that could be musical, you know, in the musical genre. And that immediately is like, huh, what about that idea? And so then it was thinking, okay, let's make them a couple and let's call the place Schmigadoon. Bam, TV show. (laughs) So so then they loved the idea and 
and said, we think Cecily would be perfect for it. And I mean, she's a you know, she's so funny, but yeah. she has a beautiful singing voice. And so we met with her, she loved it. And then we moved on from there. Then we sold it to Apple and, and then they actually made it. It's crazy all <laughs> because this is a crazy show. It's like, it's, it's very weird. Every day that I was on the set, I was like, it was sort of pinch yourself, right? <laughs> How is this happening? I mean, it but, is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's amazing and it's a, it's a testament to, I mean, look, there's so much competition with so many of these streamers. It's, it's, if you're creating content, it's a great time. And if, you know, there's something unique and different, I think people are taking a chance on it. Imagine like the world where there were three networks and, you know, limited primetime hours. Um, it's it's nice to that there's more flexibility yeah. there. I was going to ask you guys because I know I know a bunch of different folks that are doing stuff over at Apple. Sometimes they'll have you come in and they'll say, "Great, we love it. Now write the first four episodes, and then we'll make a call on if we want to do this or not." Did you have that similar experience, or was it different? I mean, we sold it as a pitch, okay. but then they did have us write the first two episodes. Got it. Okay, and then that helped them move to the next level you know it's sort of it was the ever uh elusive green light yeah. Yeah. with this it just took forever and i kept we kept thinking it was greenlit yeah. and it wasn't quite greenlit and then covid happened right which was yeah which made things much more complicated but ultimately it happened we shot the whole thing we never got shut down once everybody was healthy so it was it was kind of a miracle. And does and, does Barry Sonnenfeld direct just the pilot or everything? No, he did all six episodes. Great. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's an amazing cast. Even oh. I'll even say, I mean, again, I have daughters, so Dove Cameron is a name with living. <laughs> right. Family. She who's she's amazing. Like I've been waiting to see her land in something else because she is so talented. Yeah, yeah, she's great in this, and she is very smart. Yeah, yeah super talented. Yeah, and so she's, what's she's great. What's the date on this? When do we see this? Uh, all we know right now is summer. <laughs> okay, it's like the green light. Don't <laughs> yeah. tell us when when it's going to happen. Summer right? of some year in the future. <laughs> summer, right. summer this year. Okay. This summer, Schmigadoon will come to Apple TV Plus. That's exciting. Well, congrats on that because that's that just feels like the culmination of so so much of what you guys do best. And how and and where your strengths are in music and comedy and just well we all be looking for that this summer so uh, that's that's exciting thanks yeah. um, thank you yeah well, we feel that way yeah, yeah that's sure. super cool so before we talk about Willy Wonka there's one thing uh, again I just come up with these features the morning <laughs> show but I call this the special thanks coefficient people are always given those special thanks credits in movies and nobody ever tells anybody why. So th for each of you, I want to know, Cinco, why are you thanked in Borat's subsequent movie film? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen yeah. is a massive Despicable Me fan. Yeah. And so he reached out because, you know, he was circling a story, which was a father-daughter story, right? Yep. If you've seen the movie. And so he reached out to me and said, hey, will you help me with this father-daughter story? I love Despicable Me. And I said, of course I will. <laughs> and, you know, the Borat movies aren't necessarily my style of comedy, but th I love them. Yeah. It's not something I would write. But, but, um, but yeah, so I worked on the whole, the, if there's father-daughter scene in there, you know, I, I worked on that and sort of helped craft the story and the evolving relationship between them so okay. which was super fun and it was great to work with him and that's that's fun okay <laughs> so that's why i got and special but it's like it wasn't enough to get credit or i didn't <laughs> seek credit or anything right. there's no story by um yeah ken talk to me about shrek the third i oh you know what that is that's a mistake <laughs> I, don't think, <laughs> I don't i don't i don't think i was thanked on shrek the third it's well it's on uh imdb pro is that what? isn't that the that truth? Not, Special is, thank you to Ken. Who would have thanked you? That could not be. That can't be. But it is. It's on IMDb. It's true. It's, <laughs> if it's on IMDb, it's true, Ken. What did it you do? Yes. Well, I'll tell you this. Early on, we had we working we're working on a project with Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yeah. And we were in a meeting, and he was trying to make a point, and he belittled my watch. <laughs> 
he looked at my watch and then to make a point, he said, you know, some crappy watch like this one. And the whole, after the meeting, everybody said, I can't believe he said that about your watch. So maybe that was his way of apologizing for, for making fun of my watch. I love it. That's, that's almost as good yeah. as your cuddly toy emotional connection um, yeah. logic. Um, have okay. you heard that, Ken, before? No, you, I have Were not. you aware that you were thanked in Shrek 3? No, I'll have to check that out. Are you, Ken, are you thanked yeah. in another movie that you weren't uh, directly a writer on? Why I don't know. It could be any movie. Okay. Now. I didn't even know. Why were Why were you thanked thing, so. in uh, on the movie Bullet? Why were you thanked in that movie? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a funny story. No, I, yeah. don't, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, uh, truth. Truth in the cloud, they say. So now yes. it is true. So that's yeah. a, that's a You're good. You're thanked story. in the worst Shrek movie. I'm gonna run with congratulations. That. Yes. Good job on that. <laughs> I'm just gonna tell everybody. You know, it's like my impact on the Shrek series. <laughs> You know. All right, so let's talk. Let's talk Willy Wonka now. What I don't want to do, I want folks to just go into that commentary. Like, there's so much great just conversation. I love, I, I love the fact that like you're watching that film and and Cinco, you immediately like you a song plays. You know who composed it and you know who wrote it. Um, there's, <laughs> yes. there's just some really fun stuff back and forth with you guys on it. But I'd love to, I'd love for people to know like when did you guys? I, I know you know from listening to it clearly when you saw it, but Cinco and Ken, when did you first see it? What was that first impression? And we'll go from there. Well, I, as I said, I saw it 1971 in the theater, <laughs> in my local neighborhood theater. Yeah. And uh, as we discussed this, I I was very disappointed in the movie. <laughs> he because was an it was, outraged seven-year-old. <laughs> I was an outraged seven-year-old because I loved the book so much and it was different from the book. So in a, any way in which it, you know, diverted from the book I was furious yeah. <laughs> and so I, I remember leaving the theater and really being upset and then it wasn't until later like when I was a teenager I rediscovered the movie and then just 100% fell in love with it yeah. and I've seen this I have basically the movie memorized <laughs> at this point point. and do you yes. find for you do you find from a from a music perspective are there is there a song in there that you just think is is a horrible inclusion is there one that you think is timeless that is just genius there's one i think's a horrible in inclusion which we discuss i mean <laughs> nobody really likes cheer up charlie <laughs> i'm a defender of it because i think it actually is a nice song but it does kind of slow things down but pure imagination for me is just like that is a magical song yeah perfectly i think all the other encompassing songs are... a magical moment in the show but yeah I want it now is fantastic. I've got a golden ticket. Got a golden ticket. They're all they're great. The Candyman, yeah. the big hit. Come <laughs> Candy on, Candyman. This ah. Uh, yeah. And Ken, well, when did me, you see it? For me, this movie it, it was one that I don't remember when I first saw it. It's it's like a childhood, just sort of you grow up, you know the movie. And I will say that I I you know I was always a fan of it, but it's really been over the last I don't know fifteen years that I started loving this movie. And I even I even watched it. My daughter was doing something. It was like a, we were watching this for another project she was doing. And, uh, and I really watched the movie just like two years ago. And I loved it even more. And I rewatched it for this. And it's it really does, it connects with me spiritually um, in a way. It's like, I, I find the themes just of free agency and choosing right between wrong. And and I, I don't know, there's just something about it that really speaks to me. And every time now I watch the movie, by the time we get to the end where where Gene Wilder kind of has his his blow up at Charlie, I mean, I'm in, I'm in tears. Now I can't watch it in public anymore because <laughs> I'm crying. So I, it's just a movie that's grown on me and it's sort of always been in my life, but the older I get, the more I watch it, the more I just love it. Do, how do we feel about the remake? <laughs> I have not seen the remake. I cannot believe you've seen the remake, Cinco. You're so anti every remake. I know, but I had to, and I hated it. <laughs> it's horrible. It should never have been, you know, when you have a movie like Willy Wonka, I feel this way about a lot of movies, right? As Ken knows, yeah. yes. like Bad News Bears to me is a perfect movie. Why would you ever remake yes. that? Yeah. I don't think there's a reason really to remake any movie in general. Just money. But, um, yeah. It's just money. Yeah. I mean, there was talk about people for like five seconds about remaking Back to the Future, which is like a perfect movie. 
And yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like you, it's just, it's that element of that we talked about, like with kids and a younger audience, like subtitles, forget it, black and white, forget it. Like they're just certain, oh, it looks grainy. Like there are things that they just can't seem to get over. And this is the industry's way of, oh, well, let's just do a new version of Total Recall. Let's do a new version of, of this and that. Yeah, so and it's a, it's a shame because I, you know, Cinco and I do a, a podcast where we we talk about movies and and uh, and the one message that I always and it's sort of my message in life now with anybody that I see, especially when they have little kids and they're raising kids, I really think it's important to show your kids movies at the right time. Yeah. Meaning, show them the old movies first so they're not, you know, thrown by the bad effects. Right. Um. You know, show them the original Star Wars trilogy before they see anything else. Yep. in that universe yeah it really makes a difference because we talk about movies all the time and the age you see a movie has such an impact on it's whether or not so you accept true. it and believe it or whether you roll your eyes and think well that's cheesy yeah i mean it's yeah. it's it's a it's a it's a really good point and um you know even from a you know it's interesting from a music perspective or a movie perspective it's fascinating how the first time so the first time you saw willy wonka and you heard that song that song will forever remind you you have the visual sense memory of that moment it's it's really amazing how a a moment in a movie an emotion a song can stay with you forever like who broke my window by alfonso ribeiro so yes you know See, oh, who, sure we who missed could it. forget we, that no we no. miss it no, no matter how much we watch it now it won't stick it won't stick we're I know. too old yeah well well listen you you guys have been great the commentary is awesome i want to plug a few things clearly every animated movie that's made over 100 million dollars is yours so um <laughs> people can go watch all the despicable me's the secret life of pets the lorax horton here's a who bubble boy don't forget santa claus 2 or college road trip which is another mm. conversation altogether <laughs> i'm, I'm glad we didn't have that conversation today. <laughs> Schmigadoon this summer on Apple TV Plus. Paul, uh, sorry, Cinco, you have a new book coming out in August. Oh, that's right. Yes. Clayton Parker really, really, really has to pee. It's a children's book. It rhymes. It's Susie and rhyme, actually. Good. It's that iambic tetrameter. But so there we go. That comes out in August, and then and then you want to tell people your podcast as well. Oh yeah, we call it's called Make Him Watch It, and we make each other watch a movie we've never seen before, and the other has never seen before. Cool. And then we discuss. So check that out wherever you can find podcasts. Awesome. Listen, I want to thank you guys. This has been super fun and um, best of luck in all of your yeah. future endeavors. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us. All right. Thanks guys. And there you have it. Yet another edition comes to a close. If this was your first listen uh, of the duo, Ken and Cinco, don't forget we have the full-length audio commentary for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, available now as well. I want to thank these guys for joining. Really a great conversation. I could have sat here for hours digging into all sorts of things, but everybody has schedules. We've got things to do, places to go. As always, please remember the three R's of podcast success. Rate review and retweet let folks know share the word spread the word as well you can share the word or you can spread the word either one this is paul davidson saying thanks we'll see you again next week on none other than the sidetrack